A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 248, Doing Data Quality Right by Building Trust. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Ale Cabrera, Senior Data Quality Product Manager at Clearbit. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views on the episode. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Ale's point of view. Number one, a key part of understanding what data work will be impactful is a simple phrase. Is my understanding correct? Putting out there what you took in from what they were saying and making sure you're on the same page will save a ton of time and headaches. Number two, her advice to her past self. In data, far too often we try to jump to solutioning instead of really taking the time to understand the problem. Start from understanding the problem and assessing it first. Number three, it's very easy to make data say something that it's not actually reflecting. Quality isn't just about accuracy or similar metrics. Sometimes there are intangible aspects around correctness that people get but usually can't measure or exactly kind of give the specifics of. Number four, in data work, many people miss two crucial aspects, the voice of the customer and the why. If you build the greatest thing ever, but it isn't what the customer wants, it won't be used. Similarly, if you focus on the work and not the target outcome, your results are likely to be subpar. Number five, if you want to prove data work return on investment, try to associate it to a key company metric and talk about how improving that metric will drive better business outcomes. Ali talks about doing that with churn. Number six, when you want to prove out the value of data quality, 
attach quality issues to direct business challenges or goals. It's easy if you are a company selling data like Clearbit, but you have to understand why bad quality data negatively impacts the company in order to gain influence to improve your data quality, right? If people don't think that the bad data quality is impacting the company, they're not going to want to pay to fix it. Number seven, far too often in data work, people try to exchange data, the ones and zeros, and forget to exchange information. Get people together and make sure you are in alignment. Get people actually talking to make sure you understand and have a good path forward. Number eight, the most crucial aspects of data quality is trust. If you can't drive trust, then all the quality in the world doesn't mean anything because people won't use it. Number nine, as a data person, your job is not to do data work. It is to unblock teams, projects, people, and add value. Yes, that is through data work, but the work isn't the point. It's again going back to the outcome. Number 10, the way to think about trust is a combination of, quote, credibility, reliability, and intimacy by self-orientation. Number 11, measuring trust is hard, but a good way is through interviews with users, right? There isn't a an exact way to measure this, so a lot of times you just have to talk to people. Number 12, nothing will ever be perfect, so consumers need to understand that. A mature and healthy conversation is to ask them to tell you if they see any data quality issues, because issues always can happen. If they won't consume from data that might not be perfect, they can't consume any data. That's just kind of the way the world is. Number 13, when you are quick to react to data quality issues as a producer, your consumers can get more value from the data because they can be sure, they can be more sure that sooner whether the shape of the data changing is an issue or a genuine reflection of something changing. So kind of rephrasing that, it's they're able to just say, okay, they're, they're able to be much more sure, much more quickly that this was actually a change in the data instead of an issue, instead of an error. Number 14, in data quality, typically one size fits all really ends up being, you know, that it fits for none. You don't want to over-customize a data product, but still your consumers are likely going to want something that fits their needs rather than something generic that they have to do the heavy lifting of, you know, a lot of transformation to be able to use. Number 15, how people consume the same data can have a large impact on trust too. While data people hate Excel, sometimes you have to deliver something that the consumers can use, right? That they can use in Excel. Otherwise, the consumers will struggle to trust the data enough to actually rely on it. And you want to get to people trusting enough to rely on this. Otherwise, it's just data work for the sake of data. Number 16 is what makes something great the output or the impact. When applying product thinking, something doesn't really matter unless it has unless it is used to generate value. And so that impact is the thing that matters. It's not that you have created data. And finally, number 17, a key aspect of product thinking is prioritization. Yes, it would be great if we could build to every ask, but focusing on what will most likely deliver value and why will keep you more focused on generating value through your data work.
Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Ale Carabrera here, who is the Senior Data Quality Product Manager at Clearbit. But to be clear, she is only representing her own views on this episode. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things uh, around data quality and just kind of how do we communicate data quality? How do we think about data products? How do we kind of communicate with each other around data just in general? How do we get past that? Like, is it good quality or bad quality? What does it actually mean? How do we be transparent about that? So we're going to be diving into a lot of different topics that are very important for data mesh and outside of data mesh. So I think this will be useful for a lot of folks. But before we get to that, Ale, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Sure. Thank you, Scott. Really happy to be here. I go by Ale. I'm originally from Venezuela, relocated to Canada 10 years ago, and I've been working in data from the beginning of my time in life. And I took a difficult bet a few years ago to focus in data quality because I was an academic person. I was a university professor before. And when you are publishing papers, like the quality of the data is really important. Then when I moved to Canada, it was really important. I moved to work in the digital world. So data quality, it was different because when you can fit data into a spreadsheet, and this is actually my definition of big data, can you fit the data into a Google spreadsheet? That's regular data. You cannot, that's big data. And then you need to be smart in the way that you do data quality. And then I start looking at the signals. I have never been happy with this garbage in, garbage out. So it was a bet that I took because it was not the most sexy part of data. When I started on this, everything was, everyone was working in data visualization, all the big tools like Tableau, um, Power BI. But I really like this about like how we make our data better. And then three years ago, I took another difficult bet that it was, now I want to build data products and focusing the data quality, but building tooling to make the quality of the data better. So right now, as you mentioned, I am in Clearbit. There is a data company. So as for me, the candy store, because there is data everywhere. Uh, and then I, can, I have the time to um, implement data quality tooling, checkups, and strategies every day. Yeah, and I was, when you said the, the thing about being a professor, I, I just go back to the um, paper that was um, where they just did a really bad formula where they were talking about uh, austerity for different governments. And so it led to all these people doing like very, very bad austerity cuts um, because this paper had said that this is the best way to drive economic growth. And literally they just didn't include the like 40% of the countries because the, the, the formula only went down for the first 60% of the countries. And so if you actually did it with the right math, it said, don't do austerity cuts. And so all these people had all their social services cut and like all of these people suffered based on 
bad data. And I think that's that's like one of those things of, you know, these these we sometimes think about data quality as not really being that, you know, it's important to the business, but it's also like, oh, okay, we made a whoopsie. But sometimes this stuff is really, really um really impactful, not just even for the the organization itself, but for the greater world. So I, I think that that might be a, a good place to also kind of start was the question that we were planning on on talking about starting with is like when you think about data quality and you think about you're doing these data products and all this stuff now, like one question I like to ask people is is what would you tell your past self? Like you're, you're you've now really spent a bunch of time in this building data products focused on data quality. Like what would be your advice to your past self? What what do you wish you knew three years ago and that maybe other people have yet to discover that you can save them from going through that same pain. Do you have any kind of advice that you'd give to your past self? I do. Uh, I I think that I, is, I would love to say that I am smart enough to get that advice to myself, but it's actually an advice that I got from my lead engineer in my previous company. Stop working, take out your hands from the keyboard and just think about it. Because sometimes as data people, we want to jump into the problem. We want to solve the, 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 we want to get the solution done. We have the superpower that we can code things and we can do the things and we can see the data flowing. But this is not all the time the best approach. So what you need to do is to take a breath, get out of your keyboard and think what I am trying to do. What is the problem I'm trying to solve? How I solve this? And then is when you start coding and you start doing things. Uh, that will save me a lot of hours of frustrations, a lot of really bad decisions I took, because it's not that I was not doing it, but I was doing it afterward. So then you have a third iteration, second iteration, and then things are not matching, not working. Like, <clears throat> okay, let me take a step back. If you start from the beginning, taking that deep breath and thinking through, then you save a lot of time for you and your team. So that will be my advice for my three years ago, Ale, starting on product in data. I, I just want to uh, interrupt. Like, when you were saying about that paper, um, I always say that there are three types of lies, and this is not by joke. There are good lies, bad lies, and statistic lies. So we have a superpower when we do data transformation, and we can also torture the data. We can make the data say what we want the data to say. And this is not what data quality means. Data quality is respect your data and look at the data and take into consideration any bias, any things that can be surrounding your data. And then you produce the best possible outcome for your audience. Uh, that's to me the respect that I have for the data. And that's what drives me to work every day. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about of um, Guy Taylor kind of talked about this too, of in data there is a, um, well, in tech in general, but especially in data, there is kind of a uh, bias towards action. And sometimes the correct action is no action, right? And so, you know, when you think about that, like, what are we trying to do? Like, let's focus on the jobs to be done. What are the, I, I have this problem because the way my brain works, I'm just always um, thinking of 50 different potential ways to get to a target outcome. So when people start coming to me with, this is the way we want to do this, 
it's like, okay, but let's actually stop. What are you trying to achieve? And let's talk about what you're trying to achieve first. Because if I know what you're actually trying to have as the outcome, then we can work better towards that instead of, hey, you know, and I have this when I suggest things to people. I'm like, hey, so here's a way that I think this might work, but like, I'm totally not tied to that. And they're like, okay, so that's the way we're going to do it. But why? I, I'm just saying that this might be an option. Is this the right option? I don't know. So um, I think that's really important to think about that, that data um, in general. And I think that respect for your data of like, yeah, I can get it to show whenever I want it to show. But is that actually the what's the best representation of what's actually happening versus what story do I want to tell and kind of having that that respect? So So when you think about quality and that respect for data and that that um, actually showing people what's going on, where do you think people go wrong with that? Is it that they have preconceived notions of what the data should say? Where, where do you think it goes wrong? Is it that they don't, a lot of times they don't really understand what the data is saying and they don't dig deep enough into it and they go, this is an interesting insight, even if it's not necessarily the it's it's correlation versus causation or you know all of those fun stuff where do you think people typically go wrong with that i think this is a very good question and i think it's i don't want to call it ego or preconception or bias but when you know how to do data you have a superpower you can do a lot of things and it's easy to believe that you know the truth the truth right and you know how to do it I know better than you because I've been working on this and I know what to do with this. And sometimes we forget two things that are for me the most valuable things in the product area that are the voice of the customer and the why. So we, if you forget that, I get an a, a issue from a user and the user is telling me, okay, I need this report. And I don't try to understand why are they trying to do. I try to jump into the conclusions because I have the capabilities to run the query, to do the things. And then I don't even finish listening their thoughts. I just, I know what to do. I know what the dashboard or what is the product I need to do. And that's all wrong. You need to listen to this user and go back to the questions. It's not what are you trying to do? Why? What is behind this? One thing that I was uh, doing a lot in my previous, previous, previous work, we were planning something like we call analytics of analytics. We are the experts on data, but we never measure our own products. And turns out that most of our dashboards are useless. People don't look at them. Why? Because they, were, they are magnificent. They're very cool, but they are not addressing the question that people need. And then we get really frustrated when you deliver this beautiful dashboard with visualization and they just download the CSV and put that into a Google Sheet. It's like, a, no, like I created this beautiful product for you, but this for them is useless because it's not going to their why. So they need to now take the data that you did beautifully, craft it again, and then they put in a very simple Excel chart that really addressed their question. So I think it's about being humble a little bit and say, I probably don't know all the answers, that most of the cases, I don't know all the answers. For me, the real owner of the data is my stakeholder, it's not me. I just happen to know the techniques. I just happen to know how to unleash the power of this data. 
But this is my stakeholder who knows what they need and why they need it. I need to ask that question several times. Yeah, and I think that on the other side of that, so I, I think you didn't want to say it because I think you were being, uh, uh, you know, uh, pragmatic or you were being nice to data people. But like, there is some arrogance in being able to say, "Yes, okay, I I know exactly what you need, and I'm going to go grab that." But um, Aaron Wilkerson was kind of talking about this too, of jumping into solutioning and talking about um, like, but why are we doing the work? What is this going to drive? And like coming to somebody with insights and information that isn't rele- like, uh, relevant to what they care about, you're just kind of distracting them almost rather than even helping them, even though you think that my superpower has meant that I have now found this this amazing insight and this amazing information. It's like, well, but that that's 1% of our business and you just found something that's going to improve it by 5%. Great. But that 5% improvement on 1% of our improvement is 0.05% improvement on revenue growth versus if you did even just 1% or, or 0.1% on the rest of the business, it would be um, uh, so much more, more um, of an impact. So I think when you're talking about that usage and you're talking about like the, the, the what and the why and, and thinking about what matters, how do you start to think about measuring that you know, that return on investment, we were kind of talking about this in the pre-call of like, how do you communicate return on investment when people expect things around data to be crystal clear when our measurement around data is probably the most fuzzy of any measurements that we do, which is hilarious, but it's the truth. And it's not a one or a zero. It's like, hey, this is kind of what we're getting to. So I'd love to hear kind of how you start to think about that. And then how do you think about the the return on investment of data quality? Like, how do you think about the, um, assessing the cost of trust? Like, how do you think about that? I'm not asking you to solve it for everybody, but like, how do you start to think about that? How do you start to get people into a mode where you can have reasonable and useful conversations around that? It, yes. So that's, that's the most difficult part, right? Because data team or data stack are one of the most expensive parts in the company. So everything we use is really expensive. And now how can you prove the return of investment of what you are doing? And in every single training I've been taking about data quality, they always recommend you, because our tooling is very expensive, you need to attach this with the return of investment. And it's the, everyone is asking that question. My personal solution that is valid for in my case is attach this to chore. This is what is important for the company. So the quality of your data should be, in my opinion, attached to increased retention, prevention, and how you prove that. So what are the things that the quality of your data can impact the churn of your users or can uh, increase the retention? In my case, it's very easy because I am in a data company. If the quality of the data that I provide is bad, of course, the users will leave the company. But I don't think this is specifically in my case because right now I'm in a data company. That was true in my previous, previous one. I was working for customer success. And the quality of the data for what it was considered a customer, it was really bad because it took us a while to understand what was happening. But it was the refunds based on checks for international customers. 
So it was not a good tracking on that. And because we were not able to track that, it was creating a few really weird spikes that makes the data untrustable. And then we were looking at a churn that it was not real and a retention that was not real. So the fact that you're having wrong metrics lead the execs to take wrong decisions. So that's what I feel that the data quality measuring should go. So what are the things that matter for your business? And what data is core to you? In my, if you are not in a data company, you have a lot of data that matters. And this is the data that you should be really careful that have enough quality. And there are several dimensions of the quality that we can talk later and how we can take care of that. But for me, the most important part, establishing yourself as an expert in data quality is proving the value, preventing what matters for the company. Again, for me, the why is the most sacred thing that I learned since I became a product manager. What matters to the business? We need to build a good business, but we need to be profitable, right? Like we need to prevent churn and, and retain our users. So what are the metrics that you can care about that? Those are the ones that I demonstrate to my execs. This is why the data quality program is important. And I'm measuring the impact of data quality in our own uh, churn metrics. And, and I think the answer to this is it feels like it might be um, kind of basic or, or, or obvious, but I want to just kind of ask the, the question out loud of like, how do you find out, how do you recommend data people find out what are the things that matter most to the business? Like how, because a lot of times I talk to data people and they go, I don't know what powers the business the most. And uh, you know, there's that whole meme of, you know, I, I, at this point, uh, I don't know what this means and I'm too afraid to ask. So like, how do you recommend people drive into, cause it might not be retention or turn. It might be something totally different. It might be something, you know, especially internal serving domain, a domain that serves internally, it's not retention and churn for them specifically. So how do you recommend people actually go and find what matters and why? Ask people is is so basic to me. Like I talk to people. I can tell you one situation I have once. I was in this company and I think I lose a lot of weight because we were having two buildings and I have to go from one building to the other and no one was doing that. So I am in this project and we are like a 10 people in the room and one of them say, can we do a round of introductions? And so like, what are you talking about? You have been here for five years. I'm the new one. No, I don't know anyone here. So they were not connected to each other. They were sending data to each other, but they were not able to understand what was happening. And my team member was having a failure. We were having a massive data quality issue. Just half of the data was coming through. And we were not able to look what was happening. And in this warm-up water cooler at the beginning, one of the engineers in the other building say, are you taking both servers? Which both servers? Well, we're in Canada. We have the East and the West. Of course, we were having half of the data because we were just looking at the West servers and not to the East servers. So how you know what matters? You talk to people. You find what is the people that you, that, that is taking care. You talk to them and then you listen, you convert that into text, and then you confirm. Sorry, I understood that what matters for us here is we're tracking the users that are recurrent. Is that correct? If I give you this chart, that will be useful for you? Not really. And what I want is to check the users are coming in mobile or whatever is the metric. 
But it's important that, and I think it's to the point that we were talking before. It's like a, we believe that we know because we have the superpower, but the truth is we don't know. We are just owners of a skill set, but we need to learn and we need to, to ask people and confirm because just asking you is not enough. I need to ask and confirm if my understanding is correct because we speak different languages. Data, marketing, sales, we are different languages. Yeah, and, and uh, we had an episode a while back with uh, Tim Tischler and he was talking about he he sees that there's too much of a combination of communicating person to person and computer to commu- computer, right? Instead, and kind of mishmashing those together instead of saying, this is our computer to computer communication level, our, our, our layer of that, of like APIs and like actual communication of that. And then on top of that, we have person to person. And I've been talking about this with data contracts as well, where you go, hey, the computer to computer is assured by the data contract. But then you have to wrap around that a data sharing agreement of, does this mean what I think it means, right? And and you get that, like, the, exactly what you said of that actual confirmation where you say, hey, here is my understanding of what you just said. Like, I, I just even do that as, as on these episodes of going, is this what you mean by, or is this? And half the time I'm like, oh, I got that wrong. Oh, okay. You meant this other thing. Okay. That's really interesting. Or it, it opens up additional questions instead of just going, oh, okay. You know, it's like the requirements dump versus the actual collaboration around what are you actually trying to, why do you want this? What are you trying to achieve? Because if I know what you're trying to achieve, oh, you know, that the thing that you said right there of, of um, only getting half the data, if you see something, say something like, what are the implicit assumptions that someone has? Oh, of course, I think that this is all the data because this is the only thing somebody's pointed me at. Why wouldn't I? Why would I know about this other half of the data? Well, why wouldn't you? Well, because it's not it's not obvious. I, you know, I just um, I previously was running the data mesh learning meetup. And when I can't when I handed over all of the meetup groups to the new entity that's running data mesh learning, meetup kept my subscription running. Right. They charged me even though I had no groups. And so I went back and forth with them and they they actually didn't even refund me the first time. So hopefully they did the second time um, because I had to connect uh, contact them again. But um, that, you know, they were like, oh, well, you still get charged if you if you don't have any groups. And I'm like, that is a non-obvious thing. You should be alerting someone that your subscription renewal is coming up and you have zero groups. That should be something of I see something, say something. That's just a, a horrible experience quality issue, right? Where I'm like, I'm not going to use them again for anything because I can't really trust that they're going to do the right thing because of that. So like, uh, you know, it's it's a very specific example, but it's just like, of course, I wouldn't have thought that when it, once I handed those over, why would I expect that I would still be charged at having zero groups? Yes, I could see it if you hand over a bunch of groups and you've, you're kind of shuffling through, but... I didn't have any groups for three months and you're still going to charge me. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, I fully agree with you on on that. I think it's just, it was kind of wild in my opinion that they did that. Like, uh, I want to give you space to react to that. Yeah. I just like, uh, for me, everything in data quality is all about trust because I can do like uh, all my acrobatics to have the best possible data in every area of the company. If you don't trust me, that's useless. 
And I really follow Dan Ariely's definition of trust. Uh, I think that he's really cool in his talk, but it's about credibility, reliability, intimacy, but it's a self-orientation. So you need to believe that what I'm doing is for you and not for me. And to the example that an example that you are just mentioning with meetups, what is the purpose of this business? Is making money or is helping people to meet? Because if the purpose is on them to make money, I am not really super interested. I know that they are a profit company and I work for profit companies. But the final interest should be to help, to unblock, to do something for other one. So the, the purpose, if you are not having meetups, I should be there to unblock you. What is going on? Hey, do you need the help? I have here an academy. Do you want to meet with our more successful uh, people organizing meetups? So that kind of information is really good for the user. And you should be able to build tooling that alerts with the data. And I know what is going on and prevent the user to have a bad experience. And that's where I was always attaching this to churn. Because now, yeah, I charge you three months. But because I didn't use my data quality properly, now you will churn and you will put this in a podcast and a lot of people will churn. So that's a very bad practice. So you should be able to use the power of your data to engage people and to make like, a, okay, what I can do for you. I'm noticing that you are decreasing. Can I do something to help? And for me, that is that the self-orientation. I am here and this is the reason I wake up every day. Every company I work for, it's not for me to prove that I'm really good at doing data. What I am unblocking for people every day with my work. I want people to be successful at their business. They need good data. If I want the people to close business, they need really good data from my company. And that's the reason I do my work. So it's not for me, uh, it's for them. And that's important to transfer when you are. I, I think that's for me, the key of being a successful data person. Try to build the trust and keep always the orientation to the voice of your customer. And, and I've been kind of trying to flip around a little bit on the, on the word trust because I think where we're trying to get is not just do you trust the data, but do you trust it enough to rely on it, right? Where it's, it's no longer, yeah, I think this is probably right, but it's like, no, I feel like I can rely on this so I can actually build something of value that I'm going to not have to spend all of my time saying, is this data correct? That I can I can trust that the data is correct to a degree that we've agreed upon and I know how far I can trust it. And I also know that data isn't a one or a zero as much as we talk about the ones and zeros of data, but it only tells you so much it can't it can't be absolute no no data is really absolute or you know no data of any value is absolute it gives you a perspective of what's going on of whatever you're trying to to measure but it's just that and so like how do you think about measuring that that level of trust and we, we talked a little bit about this in the pre-call but i think especially that um, that kind of second derivative of trust when, when trust is, is eroding or trust is improving, like, how do you think about measuring or, or at least keeping an eye on that? Cause I know it's very difficult to literally measure trust versus you kind of get a sense of what's going on if you're paying attention. 
I I have my own formula of quality. And as a data person, I need the hard numbers and I know I need to provide those hard numbers to my users. But for me, data quality is quality plus trust. And this is all elevated by pertinence because the quality piece that is the one I measure, like is this number in the right format? Is this number fresh? It was the latest, um, I am sure is the is in the latest version available for whatever is the purpose, like a, the number of employees in my case, or in the last invoice that you got, said so you have like a demo accuracy. Is this really the good number? So you have a lot of mathematical and statistical way to measure that, and you put that into a bucket. But then you have the trust bucket that is the most difficult one. And that's why for me is credibility, reliability, and intimacy by the self-orientation. How I measure that, I do interviews. I do interviews all the time to my users and I check, do you trust the data? How do you feel with my data? And and if they notice something, I encourage my users, you see something, you say something. I have several ways for my users to come here and say, something is wrong here. I, I define myself as a bug eater. I love to have the box in the data. And I always say that I work for my self-destruction. I dream the day that there is no data quality issues. And that's what I need to get the users to tell me, to point me where I'm wrong. And that will trust. Because if I am, you know, with this thing on my head that I, I don't want to see things wrong because 80% good is okay. Actually, I'm the other way around. We have several channels in the company the users can come and poke at my eye and say, hey, watch out, this number is grown. And I use that. And that gives them the feeling that someone is listening because it's true, I am listening. And I take that seriously. And then I spin an investigation to check what is happening. So that's the way I build trust in two ways. One, I show the, I show the hard numbers. This is what I do. This is how I can confirm you. My data is fresh. My data is increasing. My data is with valid format. I do that. But I also open all the time to listen to you. Whatever you notice, I will take it seriously and I will investigate what's going on. I am not doing hot fixes. I'm doing root cause investigation and I will fix that. That is giving us a really good results with people trusting because we are deep involved in improving the quality of the data. And I think that brings up a really interesting question that you might not feel super comfortable at answering. So that's fine if you want to pass out on one aspect of this. But I started to talk with somebody about kind of psychological safety. And when you're thinking about being a company that is selling data, can you go to an external customer and tell them, if you see a problem, I need you to tell me? You know, because then you're inherently putting in their mind the idea that data quality issues may happen, right? And so can we do the same thing internally where we go, like, data quality challenges are, are a thing, right? They exist. You have to be prepared. And so if you see something, you have to say something. And it may be, oh, wow, that's actually a really interesting insight. No, that's not a quality issue. It's just something has changed. But like, I'm glad you had that. So let's have that conversation. But internally, there's a little bit more inherent trust versus vendor client. So how do you think about that 
external communication. If you do that kind of, if you're if you're working with those customers, if you feel comfortable talking about that, because I know that could be a little bit sensitive, but like I, I feel like it would be so refreshing as a uh, a customer of somebody to be like they're admitting that things are are going to be a challenge and that they're committed to making sure that this is as good as possible. So they're committed to listening, but it's also going to kind of set some things in lizard brain of going, oh, so their data is not any good. You know what I mean? Like, how do you balance that conversation? It's, it's, and, and that's why it's such a difficult question. Yeah. And I mean, again, I, I'm talking for myself, uh, but I am not perfect and I am not aiming to be perfect. And I don't think anything in this planet is perfect. If my goal will be having perfection, I mean, I won't be doing anything because I will be frustrated every minute. Nothing is perfect. The only thing in my life are perfect are my kids. And just because I'm their mom and I see them perfect, but the truth is they are not. So I think it's about being humble and checking and saying, yes, I know that I will make mistakes and they will be there. But we have, we just have a blog post that we launched this email that is called datadocs at clearbit.com. That is just, if you see something, say something. I am here to listen to where I'm watching that email every day. Someone is noticing any error on Clearbit data. I am monitoring everything. And I'm using that as a self-competition, to be honest. I should be the one that is noticing things before. I should be the one noticing because I have I, I, it's like a, in the airports, you know, they have all these monitors checking everything. I have that. And it's crazy. I have everything looking at everything. And when things fail, because I, of course, as I say, I'm working for my sales instruction. I'm aiming for a world that there is no data quality issues. I know deep inside my heart that this is practically impossible when you manage the amount of data that I manage internally. Things can break. And that's not a problem. The problem is when things break, what do you do? You hide them and you don't say anything or you recognize them and you're willing to solve that. There are challenges all the time. What do you do with the huge amount of layoffs happening in the industry right now? We saw the changes in the economy. They are changing really weird signals to the data and your systems probably are not probably calibrated to understand, is this an error or is this good data? We need to recalibrate and then the logic chains outside. So I think that as a data people, we need to be kind with ourselves and understand we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. The problem is what you do with your mistakes. I am not saying, I, I say when I join, I make my clear beat, I hear our data is really cool. And I was like, yeah, based on what? Uh, because I never that the person, I need to see it. Now I have this huge, insane monitoring system. I can tell our data is healer better than any of the competitors out there. How I know? Because I have all the metrics. That means I don't make any mistake. Of course not. I make mistakes all the time. That means we never have a number ground. Of course not. But that means we are aiming to fix everything we see all the time. And we're making our data better all the time. It's the same principle that I apply as a mom. I'm a perfect mom. Of course not. But every day I'm trying to do better for my kids. So here I think the question is about perfection. I'm not recognizing that my data is wrong. My data is really good. But I am recognizing that I can make mistakes. Sure. And do my users have 
a channel to tell me? Absolutely open. Uh, and in we have more than, we have different channels. You can click on the platform, you can send a signal, you can send an email, you can call with yes. There's several ways that, and we pay a lot of attention to that. We talked about this a little in the pre-call, but how can you be transparent with those users about data quality? Because like, this is something that I think is especially important, maybe not even in, in the selling, but internally that people understand at the different aspects of quality and that we've got more and more sophisticated data users, but we're also trying to bring in these far less sophisticated data users. And so those people, like a very, you know, a data scientist is going to understand what, how much of this can I trust? How accurate is it? How, like, I'm going to run statistical analysis against this. I'm going to figure out like what, what my actual trust level is versus, um, you know, an exec may be saying this is a one or a zero. How many customers do I have? Well, what do you mean by customer? No, that's not what I asked. I asked how many customers do I have? Or, okay, like this has 98% accuracy. So you're say saying that it's wrong because it doesn't have 100% accuracy. And it's like, that's not a thing. And like, so how do you think about communicating to both? Because, I mean, are you trying to communicate to both at the same time? Are you trying to take separate paths? Or like, how do you think about, and I, I mean, Especially, how would you think, what would you recommend to others to think about in that space? Like, what have you learned? Sure. I I am a very big, uh, I, I against one rule fits all. Uh, one thing that we need to understand as data people is our users are every time more sophisticated. When I started doing data, I was like, oh my God, you can do this kind of thing. Today, everyone with a software can do things that took me a year doing my master's degree. So a lot of people is really sophisticated and they can do really powerful stuff really quickly. So this is something that we need to take into consideration. The other piece is what you just say. Not everyone is asking for the same degree of rigor. Not everyone is asking the same question. When you try to rebuild a single response for everyone, someone will be disappointed. It's like when the teachers used to do the things for the average kid. And then if you were really shy like me, you were like a, not exactly in the group. And this guy that he was super extrovert, it was not really happy. So you need to pay attention to everyone. And I think we need to build different messages. You're not lying, but let's take out data for a minute. And if you go to a restaurant and you are a sommelier, you are really sophisticated testing the wine and the food and everything. You want a different kind of information that probably my mom, she just wants to eat. And that means my mom is a bad customer. No. So a good restaurant should be able to address my mom and get my mom in a table and get the food. And this really sophisticated sommelier who wants to know what is the best combination for the wine and the meat that is taking. So going back to the data, I have users that just tell me how many users can I use? What is my... Uh, customer base, what is the best fit for me? Good, I go there. But I have teams that they are like an amazingly good team of data scientists using our data. And then I need to work with them and I need to get a different level of response. I think all the time the question goes back to what are you trying to achieve and why? We're experts on this data, let me help you, but I need to listen what are you trying to do because I don't know all your answers, I don't know your business. So you tell me what is your use case, 
What are you trying to do? And now I modify my speech to say what you need, because I have a lot of information. I need to give you what is the useful for you. That is probably not the useful for another one. Yeah. I, I, so we had a thing, um, a panel around data user experience, and we talked about Alice Parker did her master's thesis around um, user experience with data, especially around data mesh, right? And so she interviewed just a ton of people. And um, there were about 10 different personas that came out as to who are the users within data mesh. And that's on the producer side, on the consumer side, and on the yes side, as in both, and on the neither side, as in like uh, regulatory and you know risk management and things like that, because they're not really a producer of data or a consumer of data, but they're uh, they have to be satisfied as to how this flows through and understanding you know a lot of different aspects. So it was it was very interesting, and and I think you're saying that same thing of like, what are we trying to do and why just keeps coming up more and more, and one size fits all, fits none, and if your data really fits none, then you're it's it's kind of uh, you know, the whole thing of full and sound and fury, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's it's full of, of uh, you know, um, cloud compute and storage signifying no value, right? It's it's all of this work, all of the, and a lot of people work and stuff when the value ends up being very, very low because you tried to make it one size fits all instead of, hey, you know, in data mesh, you think about like uh, an output port on a data product, like, Hey, these people want to consume via API and they want like this advanced thing and they want the raw data versus these other people want it in a dashboard. So, you know, who controls, uh, you know, who owns the dashboard? We can have that conversation, but like, okay, we have to make this so that they can pull it in. Oh, the data analysts want to pull it into Excel, right? Like I love Excel. I, I know data people, you know, uh, love to, to kind of throw some shade at me about, loving Excel, but I love it because I can see exactly what's going on and I can go back and forth and I can try all of these things. And then if it's something of value, then I push it back into something more of a sustainable process. But like I can so quickly evolve and test things out at that kind of micro level. But like you're, if you're not meeting your consumers where they are, then they're not going to consume. And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I went there at some point, like, uh, oh, you're using Excel and I'm building this beautiful dashboard. And then you go back, you take out your amazing data science roles. And it's like, what is these people doing? Like, maybe you are giving a Ferrari to a person who just needs a bicycle. So give them the bicycle. That's okay. I mean, what is, what is wrong with having, and I think using Excel goes back, back to trust. The reason because people want to use Excel, because if they can do it, they can check, you can see. When I give you my beautiful dashboard, what is behind the scenes lies with me. When I give you the Excel, you can do it and you will do a chart that is prob probably the same that I did, but you know what is behind the scenes here. It's like a, going back in the kitchen to see what the ingredients they put in. Now I eat that food. So yeah, I think that one fits all, I love what you say, fits not, feel, fits none. And, and we are very conscious. I, in my work, I'm very conscious and in the company about the use case. It's the first question we ask every time to the user. What's your use case? And let's take this back a little bit. 
And and uh, so Marisa Fish helped me kind of uh, evolve. She had a, uh, a kind of two stage, and I, I evolved it into three. But of uh, when you're actually exchanging information, you have to be crystal clear about what do they want. So in in your example, they wanted the data, right? And so you need to ask people: Do you want the data? Do you want the data and the insight? Or do you want the data, the insight, and the so what? Or do you just want the insight and the so what, right? Like, do you want the data? Do you want the insight? Or do you want the insight and the so what? And so a lot of times, execs want the insight and the so what. What is this telling me? Like, I asked you to look into this thing. You're showing something to me. What do you think I should do off of this? Or at least this is what this is telling us about. But so many times we give people just the data and if they understand that they can trust the data and they can see how that data has been computed, then they don't want to do all of the data work themselves. Some do, but a lot don't. And so like that being very, very crisp as to who handles what, right? See something, say something, be explicit, like put it down. Who is actually, you know, I did a, uh, I worked at a SaaS company and um, for some reason, the cost guy was was managing the first downtime that we were doing, mostly because it was it was mostly around cost cuts. But I wrote down this list of about fifty things that could go wrong, and to say like, "Are we doing this? Are we doing this?" And somebody's like, "That's just overkill." And I'm like, "No, this is good product management because it's it's about making sure that you've got your your prepared for." where are failure scenarios? And if they come up, you've got an idea of where they are and you've got an idea of places to look. And then you share that with others and they can say, oh, okay, is this done? You know, we, we had a failure scenario where we had the emails for the customers that was their official listed email for their account. When we sent emails to that, we actually checked in with a number of large customers and like 70% of them didn't get the email because it was delivered but it wasn't to an email that anybody checked or that was an email that people had uh, that had been deprecated and it was a list that nobody was using anymore. And so it was like, this is why we check on these things because we would have had irate customers, even though legally we did what was required, but we certainly didn't do it socially. We didn't do it in a way where they would trust us as a vendor. And so us going to them and saying like, we want to make sure, did this come through? Was this what you wanted? Was this what you expected? That was something that that made them lean into trusting us where they were like, okay, these people are really on our side because they're really making sure that we we get that. And it created somewhat better relationships. Imagine it taking a downtime and that creates better relationships. Totally. And I like what you're saying, I there is a very old advertising from Volkswagen that that changed my view in Volkswagen and in my life because they say you need to check and it's all the pieces in the car and they do a check. And then the hands go back and say, and then you double check. And then they create the W, like a Volkswagen is double check. And every time I train people, it's like, we need to do it this way. You need to double check. Because the code is, to your example, the code is working as expected, but it's not as the product expected because you need to double check. You send an email, right? You did your homework. No. What is the expectation? The people reply. Why do you have that low response rate? because they're sending to non-monitored emails. So always double check. And I am a pe- optimist by heart. I am. I define myself as annoyingly optimist. I always think things will go great. 
But I always draw these what-if scenarios. I have my list. I'm not pessimist. I have the list. But you were saying like I was like a check. I am still seeing on that. What can go wrong? Because things will go wrong in some ways. And it's better if you know beforehand. This is not a blocker for you. But it's a way. Okay, you double check. Everything is great. Cool. Nothing happened. We don't need that list. Wait, something is happening here. Where does been? Where is that this can be coming from? You have your list and you start checking and you make that list easier when you are building your product because you are aware. Trying to make that list afterwards is really difficult. Carlos Soana at uh, eDreams Odigio said um, that they've got their platform and that, you know, when if data starts coming out and they're having quality issues, they have kind of these checks that if things are going through a similar pipeline transformation, they've got the list of all of those ahead of time. And so then they can go, are these other ones experiencing that same issue or not? And if they are experiencing the same issue, then there's an issue with the platform. If not, then almost certainly the culprit is the source system or something that is very specific to that data product instead of there's something specific to the platform. And so they just have a very, very quick check that they can run through. And so when they're trying to figure out like incident causes and things like that, like trying to drive towards what's what's actually going wrong, it's it's very useful for that. Um, so we've been talking a lot of, about things and it's it's kind of where I wanted to wrap up anyway of like the idea of a data product, right? Like there is such a, a lack of an understanding around what is a data product. So we can talk about your definition of a data product because it's different for everybody, but also this idea of product vision and thinking. And like, how do you think about not just, you know, data projects have, data has traditionally been like a project instead of a product. And so you finish it and it is done. And then you think about, okay, now it's in maintenance mode versus a product is like it is deployed and it is being used and we need to improve it and, you know, you know, obviously keep it running, but also improve it and evolve it and things like that. So I'd love to hear kind of how you think about a data product and what, you know, you've been doing this, your data product, uh, you know, manager around quality and things. So like, how do you think about that and what would what advice do you think you'd give to people as to where their likely gaps in what they're thinking would be? Yeah, I think that the change in mindset is, as you say, when you are a data producer, you finish your project and you move on in life. You get the, to the next one and you don't care what happened. A data product is not just have going have to go in maintenance; have to be used. Because if you have a product that is not being used, that product will be deprecated because it's useless. And that is the different mindset that I think is important because that gives you a, think, a deep thinking at the very beginning. What are we building and why? And who will be using that? And how I monitor the usage and if this product is solving people's problem. And that change that I converted to for data product manager without my intention. I was doing that. And I think I did that based on frustration because I was creating amazing things that no one was using. So why? That it, it was a disconnection there. But my things were really good, in my opinion, but not in the stakeholder's opinion. So actually, I don't think they were really good. So 
I took the step back and I say, okay, what we need, what they really need, and how we keep this ongoing thinking that this is not done. Because a good product, when it's deployed and it's done, always need to be checked, right? There are things like it will be under validity. They are really good. And there are things that we need to revisit sometimes because people stop using them. So that is a different in mindset. And I think, of course, I'm biased because I, I believe that being a data product manager is the best thing in the planet because this is what I do. But I think it's really important to start thinking in data as a product and not as a project, not just in data companies. I think that we spend a lot of money in every company in data. And if we don't think in data as product, then we don't care. Why are we doing this? We don't care if someone is using that. We don't care if what problems are solving. We just are super amazing, smart people doing amazing stuff that probably no one is using. So those are museums are plenty of these kind of things. If you are working for a company and you care about the company profit and these problems that this company is solving for people, that this is what I care the most, you should take your data as products. Any data should be a product. Anything that you do in your data team should be products that you can measure, that you can optimize, or you can deprecate when the time is coming. And how do you think about that measuring what you need to measure or measuring when you need to deprecate? Like, how do you think about, because again, with data, changes have been essentially catastrophic because everything has been so tightly coupled that making any changes breaks everything. And we're, we're trying to identify ways to not have that happen, but it's still very, very tough. And so people just in general aren't prepared for that conversation. So I'd love to hear kind of how you're thinking about that. You need to be, in my opinion, you need to be clear about what is your success criteria? What is your definition of done? And knowing that this is a definition that will change across time. Are you solving the problem? And then you need to have your KPIs on, on, on top of that. So a project, my first, very first project in a previous company as a product manager was a data catalog. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then the measure there, it was usage. Is the people using this? Because if the people is not using your product, it could be lack of understanding, and then you have an opportunity for education. That could be your product is a killer product, but people don't know how to use it. So usage is not just the only metric. Why do people don't use it? So I believe in hard metrics, and I know what you say, we're data people. But measuring the data is the most fussy and difficult thing to do. And I think this is bad. We are experts in measuring everything, but we don't measure ourselves. And I think this is the change in mindset that has to happen. And at least it was my mindset change when I became product PM, data PM. I now, instead of being the one poking at everyone's eyes and measuring every single department in the company, I am the one measuring my things. I'm measuring data. Do we use this? Why we use it? What problems are solving? And then you have a set of KPIs. Again, how you get it? You ask people. You get, you confer with your exec. Is this giving you clear signals? And you touch this with the cost. It's really expensive data stack. So how you're solving real problems in the company? And then you take the decision. Like, 
the data catalog was deprecated short after I left the company. Why? Because no one was using it. So they put another solution on top of that one that was simple, but it was solving the problem that people was having. So sometimes it's not because you failed your product. Your product sometimes have a short time life because it's solving a specific thing. And this is not a problem anymore. So that's a product that it was done for a period of time. And then you should deprecate because it's not a need anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of uh, brings us into the, the last point that we were planning on talking about of this is that products don't have to serve everyone, right? Like we've kind of had that converse, that that running through as, as a uh, through point throughout the conversation, but it's okay to have things that aren't for other people, right? It's okay to have things that are specific to um specific challenges. And so like, how do you communicate that to people internally when traditionally you're trying to solve everyone's problems with the same thing? So it, you can have a specific product, then the question is about prioritization. Is really worth it to build this product that will solve the life of two users? Uh, is there a way that we can build a product that it can solve the life of several users, but this specific feature, it will be for this persona. So, because you can have 10,000 amazing ideas every day, then the next problem of the product manager is which one are the priorities? Because you cannot do everything. You want to, you want to solve everyone's problems. So sometimes you need to take the difficult path to say, I know the specificities in every user, but sometimes you build your personas and you have 20 and, but you cannot build 20 different products. How can we, we group them in something that won't be the best experience, but what is your bandwidth? Okay. I can build five. How I can group them in a very nice comfort zone that I can build something good for them, for each one. And then I have something that for the rest. 10% or 20% that I am not able to cover with this product, I at least give them the solution. Okay, I build in this product, but I recognize, I need to be humble, I recognize that this is not the full build solution. But if you call the API, you will get the rest with your engineers. So give them the alternative. I think about that as kind of maximization, right? Of, of uh, you know, maximizing your output versus, or your impact versus your, your inputs. So, well, so we've covered a whole heck of a lot of things. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, or any way you'd want to wrap up the episode? Uh, I think the only thing that I will add is I love being a data product manager. I getting a lot of questions all the time, like uh, how you transform yourself from the data to be a product manager. And I think it's fairly easy if you connect with the product managers in your company. Uh, and it's about, I think that data people, we usually have what is needed to transform ourselves in product managers. We just need to slow down a little bit and start thinking in what is required. So this is a very, Small and high, a big change in the mindset. How we transform ourselves, uh, it requires a deep thinking. And what, I want to, what, I, what I'm trying to achieve with my data. Yeah, product managers seem to always want to pull other people into product management. It's kind of funny that way. So, 
Uh, so uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's kind of the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like them following up about? And LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn profile is my name, Alejandra, and half of my name, Cabre, Alejandra Cabre. Uh, and you find me there. Yeah, we'll drop the link in the show notes to make it easy for people to find you. So, well, again, Ali, thank you so much for spending that time here with me today. I really enjoyed it. And as well, thank you, everyone out there for listening. Thank you so much. It was a huge pleasure being with you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Ale Cabrera, Senior Data Quality Product Manager at Clearbit. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 